Thank you for downloading this podcast from the Forum for Philosophy. Subscribe for weekly discussions of science, culture, politics, and the arts from a philosophical perspective. The Forum is a non-profit organization, and our events are free and open to all. You can support our work via our website and Facebook page. Uh, good evening, everyone. Welcome to the LSE. And welcome to this Forum for Philosophy event supported by the British Society for the Philosophy of Science on the topic of black holes. I mean, black holes were, first of all, a theoretical posit. No one could really believe they existed. These places where gravity was so unbelievably strong, nothing could get out, not even light. Then they were an empirical reality. And now, for nearly 100 years, they've really captured the imagination of not just scientists in physics, but also the wider public, science fiction authors, creative people, trying to think about what on earth these things are and what goes on inside them. The questions we'll be thinking about in this event are, what are black holes? How do we know they exist? How can we know something like this actually exists? How can we even begin to know what happens as one approaches one or even goes inside one? And what can science fiction learn from the science of black holes? And what can science fiction contribute to the science of black holes? To what extent can fiction start to fill the gaps that science is unable to fill? To what extent can science fiction actually be a source of new hypotheses for scientists to then think about and test? And it's a delight to be joined by three panelists who are coming to this topic from very different directions, bringing very different perspectives to bear on these questions. Amélie Saint-Ange, a specialist in extragalactic astrophysics at University College London. Karim Thibault, a philosopher of physics from the University of Bristol. And Stephen Baxter, a critically acclaimed science fiction author known for the Zeely sequence of novels as well as the Long Earth series with Terry Pratchett and the Time Odyssey series with Arthur C. Clarke. And to give you a sense of the format for the event, I mean, essentially the panel will, will, will focus on a, on a particular topic, we'll talk about it for a bit, and then we'll go to you for your questions on that topic, and then we'll move on uh, to another key theme. And first of all, I mean, I'd like to start with you, Amelie, and just this very basic question of what a black hole actually is. I mean, I have this kind of basic understanding, gravity is very strong, light can't get out, very, very dark place. What, what, what is a black hole? Well, I think you've described it pretty much as well as I could put it. Um, yeah, pretty much a black hole is a very, very, very small volume of space that has incredible amount of mass in it, uh, meaning gravity is extremely strong, and as you say, mm. with the key characteristic that light can't escape it. Um, I mean, black holes are not all that mysterious if we put them in the context of stars and how stars mm. form and evolve. We can think of black holes as just one of the possible end products of the normal life cycle of a star. Right? A star mm. normally exists when you sort of have a balance between a lot of nuclear fusion that does a lot of pressure and mm. gravity that wants to push things back in. Um, if at some point gravity is so strong, the star collapses on itself. And in the case of a black hole, that brings the mat all the matter to such high levels of density that you end up with this 
almost infinite density, little lump of ma mm. material. So this is one of the ways a star can end, essentially. That's right. It collapses in on itself. I mean, this may be a very dumb question, but how do we know these things exist? No light gets out. Yeah, How do we know that? that's a really good question. And so we think now we're quite comfortable saying things like, well, stars can end their lives as you know, black holes, or we say things like most galaxies have a supermassive black hole at their center. Mm. Um, yet, as you say, we can't pick up light directly from the black hole itself. So we need to Could use... you explain supermassive black holes? Yeah, so, I mean, we can think of black holes, they come either in very small mm. size or in, you know, extra, extra large. They are either, like, <laughs> small or very, very big. There's sort of a massive gap in size in the middle. Uh, so we're talking, when I say supermassive black holes, I mean black holes that have above a million times the mass of the sun. And those are the gigantic beasts that are found at the centers of most galaxies. Mm. So how do we find out about them? That's a really good question and whether we're talking about the small black holes or the very big ones it's always a matter of finding their action through gravity onto something else mm -hmm. and then inferring their mm -hmm. presence um, so you have to trust in things like the laws of gravity or general mm -hmm. relativity and then if you see something moving for example we if we look deep in the center of our own galaxy we can see stars that are appearing to move. So if you take a picture of the same bit of the sky right at the center of the galaxy over a period of a few years, you can see the stars moving. And if you make a little movie of that, you can see stars zooming around. They trace little elliptical orbits. And that really strongly implies that there is something, right? You, normally you go in orbit around something. And in the case of the center of the Milky Way, we can calculate that. In that very, very tiny volume of space, there is about a million times the mass of the sun. So that's the kind of evidence we have, right? If, it, mm. if all the evidence lines up towards there being a black hole. So it's an inference. We can't see Absolutely. them. Obviously, we can't see them, but we have well-established theories of what they would do to nearby objects. Exactly. And when our observations match mm. these expectations, then we gain some confidence that we are witnessing the influence of a black hole. Does anything get out? We've got this idea light doesn't get out. Does anything get out? Um, no, no. Um, well, evaporation, hawking evaporation. Well, yeah, yeah. So maybe we want to, that's that's the, so. Yeah. So at the surface of the black hole, the event horizon, right. we might talk about that. There is the mm. famous yeah. uh, hawking evaporation, uh, but that's not technically material that's coming out mm. of right. the black hole. It is. It's almost a, so an illusion of sorts. So right. stuff can be radiated from the from the edge. That, that's right. Horizon, but not never from inside, nothing from inside. It's never true. It, well, some, some, some people think that it can, right? Yeah. I think you get enough physicists in the room, they, they always find someone <laughs> to disagree. Mm. So some people who, who work on really speculative physics, like string theory, think that, that you can get quantum tunneling out of a black hole. Uh, so at least some people. Mm. Yeah. yeah, I mean, so you said your work is in kind of extragalactic astrophysics supermassive black holes at the center of galaxies. I mean, tell us a bit about how, about your work, about how you even begin to address this question of how having, why it is that galaxies have these massive black holes at the center? Well, that's an excellent <laughs> question. <laughs> and something we're working quite hard to study. Mm. As I say, there, there are different 
theories for how you can grow black holes that are so big. Uh, we know this channel, how to form the small black holes through mm -hmm. the stellar evolution process. Now, how do we form the supermassive ones? Well, a theory is that you just take small ones and you make them collide with each other and you merge them and over time you grow them. So that would be a way. There's a problem with that. There's the fact that there's this big gap in mass, right? It seemed the fact that we don't see any black hole with intermediate masses mm -hmm. sort of contradicts that. There's also recent observations that have found some of these supermassive black holes. If when we look deep, deep into space, so only a few hundred million years after the Big Bang, you already had some of these supermassive black holes in place. And that's a huge challenge for our theories of how black holes mm -hmm. and galaxies form and grow, because that's really not a lot of time to build such a big uh, black hole. Yeah. Mm. So still a lot we don't understand. I mean, let's bring in Karim and, uh, and Stephen on this with I mean, questions for, for Amelie. So, so I, just what you, you were just saying, yeah. really. So, you, when would these supermassive, these kind of early supermassive black holes, have formed before galaxies, or just at the same time as galaxies? Yeah. So, so there's still the conditions were all a bit different in the very early universe at the time when the first stars and first galaxies formed. So, we think that back then the first stars to form could have grown much bigger than the stars we form in the universe today. So these, you start with these bigger stars, you can form seed black holes that would be already a bit bigger. Okay. And you form enough of those in a small volume of space, something that will become a galaxy, then through gravity they all merge. So there's just about enough time to do it, but it's still quite a challenge and you need all the conditions to be just perfectly right. Mm. And black holes, so they're very old, but they're not immortal, are they? because of evaporation, they actually shrink. Yeah, that's right. Though, If you calculate how long it would take for a supermassive black hole to fully evaporate, the number is, well, astronomical, for lack of a better word. <laughs> but but, yeah. We also haven't ever observed black holes evaporating. So this mm. is, it might, like, most physicists seem, that I talk to seem to think that they definitely do, but we still don't know. Absolutely. Can you say something about what that even means? This idea of a black um, hole evaporating makes so, it sound like a puddle. Or so, something. so I, I guess, like, one of the things that's most fascinating and problematic about black holes is that a lot of the properties of the black hole are really not properties of the black hole itself. The properties of this this horizon, which is the mm. the kind of imagine that space time has two kind of sectors. The sector that you can escape away to away from the black hole, and the sector where you can't escape. So it's the boundary of the sector where you can't escape from mm. is, the, is the horizon. It's the edge of the black hole. And back in 1975 or something like that, Stephen Hawking predicted that there are effects due to, to quantum physics that meant that uh, you'd expect radiation to come out of the black hole. But what Hawking didn't do is give a, a simple mechanism for how that radiation actually comes out. So you get these problems, that, like, you picked up exactly the right question, is how can it radiate if nothing's getting out? And so there are very general mathematical arguments why we should expect it to have a temperature and to, to lose energy through radiation. But there isn't a clear mechanism about how that loss actually happens. So it's very mm -hmm. puzzling, but it's also very fascinating. But that's typical, isn't it, of where 
general relativity, which is all the black hole large-scale mm. stuff, and quantum mechanics, exactly. which is the very fine detail of what goes on at the tiniest of scales at the horizon, they collide, don't they? Because we haven't mm. got, still haven't got an overarching theory that unites the very big and the very small, even though they're fantastic theories in their own right. Yeah. So you get these edge effects, in a way, which yeah, are maybe a hint of the quantum one, and one relativity of, theories that are to come in the future. One of the reasons people believe in these predictions, like Hawking radiation, so strongly is that all the different theories of quantum gravity seem to all agree about this stuff. So mm -hmm. lots of physicists have different ways of trying to do, combine, exactly as Stephen was saying, combine quantum mechanics and relativity theory. There's the string theory, which is the most famous. There's also loop quantum gravity. There's other theories that are a bit smaller. But all of them agree pretty much on this temperature thing. So even though there's no direct evidence for it, because all their theories agree, they're like, oh, then it's definitely there. Yeah. But we haven't got any evidence, Rick. And another place where these theories collide is the singularity, exactly. which you probably have forgot to mention. Uh, yeah, well. <laughs> but right, my understanding is right at the heart of the black hole. Yeah. Um, Einstein's equation, they go off to infinity. So that means the theory's bust, basically. Yeah. So yeah. Have, which is a singularity. It's a, it's a, it's a hole in the, in the equations, essentially. That's, that's right. But you're down at a point where the quantum effects must be taking over in some way. Exactly, and that's a place where... As physicists, we can't really describe that very yeah. accurately because we simply lack the tool, sure. we lack the theory to actually do it. So yeah. to really explain what happens at the event horizon or at the place of singularity, you yeah. almost have to go one way or the other. So that's why it's a very controversial kind of field because you need to let go of some basic fundamentals of general relativity or quantum mechanics and you can yeah. imagine how people get quite uh, upset about these things. <laughs> Fight. And, yeah. and it's not like I just want to emphasize that the problem of the singularity is not just that the, there's some horrible mathematical problem, it's really a physical problem because relativity theory actually predicts that things you can measure, observable quantities, would go to infinity, become, have an infinite magnitude in a finite amount of time. That's what the theory predicts. Mm. And that's something I personally think is physically very unsatisfactory because you imagine some poor little astronaut measuring something. And their measurement should, they should be able to read infinity after mm. a finite amount of time. This doesn't seem something we can physically make sense of. Yeah. I love this idea of the black hole as a place where the bounds of possibility are stretched, right? And we start to wonder whether what the physics is describing is actually possible or not. And that also this thought about black holes are this place where the physics of the very, very big meets the physics of the very, very small. And we just don't really know how to reconcile them. Yeah. Also a place, it seems, where the the boundary between theory and what is actually known from observation sure. is incredibly fluid and unstable. I mean, on this issue of yeah. you know, supermassive black holes in the middle of galaxies, mm -hmm. what's the status of that? Is that something we really, we really know from data? Um, yeah, I think so. I mean, uh, it, it always depends on how comfortable mm. you are in believing in something that you can't directly see, right? Yeah. It's like you're in... When you do astrophysics, you have to become comfortable with dark matter mm. or these kinds of things where they're part of the theory, we play with them, it's fine, and we, but you have to kind of mm. trust in the theory and that it's our best model. And So assuming mm. that we're comfortable with the act of inferring the presence of the black holes and because mm. all the observations matches with predictions, then in that sense we are quite comfortable in saying mm. that indeed there are supermassive black holes at the centres right. of most galaxies. Do so you think we're as confident of that as we are that they exist at all? Well, <laughs> <laughs> I, I, 
to me, that's a bit the, the right. same question. It, it, their existence yeah. and the evidence well, I guess for it. To put Jonathan's question yeah. differently, like, it seems like there's just as good evidence for normal-sized black holes as there is for supermassive mm. black holes. Is that true? Oh, uh, yeah, absolutely. I would say mm. observations come in different form. But, mm. I mean, we have now uh, what's very exciting development over the past year is the ability to not just see black holes, but to almost listen to their collisions through gravitational mm. waves. And that's something mm. that is bringing a completely different way of gathering information about black hole. So we've picked up with mm. these gravitational wave detectors the collisions of black holes. Mm. Um, and again, it's another prediction of general relativity Then, if you have a collision of two supermassive black holes, you predict these ripples in space, mm. and we're being able to pick up with that. So, this is a massive these, thing in Antarctica. Uh, no, it, this, so we're, this is the experiment called LIGO. Uh, right. It's two stations in the United States at, at right. the moment. And you know, with all these things, right? If you have multiple lines of evidence towards something that are kind of mm. orthogonal to each other, and they all converge into the same evidence, then your your faith in the results kind of grows. Mm. Um, yeah. I have this image of listening to the black holes, <laughs> as in in the sense that the evidence is in the form of these gravity waves. Absolutely. So you're really. Yeah. Well, I did read that the I may be wrong, but the frequencies are actually sonic frequencies. Mm -hmm. So you can you can listen. You can actually it's listen a to it. It's a yeah. like that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That was just me, by the way. Don't yeah. <laughs> <laughs> don't 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 evacuate the room. Then. It wasn't a black hole. Yeah. 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 Great. So it'd be fantastic at this point to take two or three questions from the audience on this topic of what a black hole is and Amelie's work in understanding how these black holes at the centre of galaxies affect how galaxies evolve. Um, so the question from the back there. There'll be other opportunities later to ask questions too. Thank you. On the uh, uh, question about the evidence for black holes, mm -hmm. I mean, it's clear that there is observational evidence for the fact that, you know, something like an event horizon exists. But some type of black holes, uh, in my understanding, we have also claims from theory about their inner workings. So if you take a look at, for instance, a Kern-Newman solution, a slowly rotating charged uh, black hole, you also have claims about what happens in the inner event horizon, not just the outer event horizon. Do you think we have also evidence for supporting the inner workings, you know, the theoretical predictions about the inner workings of yeah. black so, holes? Yeah. So I think this brings up an interesting point about black holes, is that they are relatively simple. So one of the basic predictions, something that's called the no-hair theorem or the no-hair conjuncture, which pretty much has that black hole have three parameters that describe them. Their mass, their spin, how fast they're rotating, and their electric charge. And that's all that we can measure. So if you, you know, a black hole grows by gathering you know, all sorts of different stuff, you lose completely the information about this. Um, and that's a problem in the quantum mechanics context mm -hmm. because there's some information about particles that you, you're not allowed to lose, but black holes allow you to lose. So if we believe that theorem or that posit, which so far all evidence points to that, that means that there is very little we can know from the outside about the inner workings of the black hole beyond these three simple quantities, uh, which is pretty much just how much mass there is in how much spin they have, the charge. We don't really believe that charged black holes would actually exist. 
So it's really down to these two parameters. So in terms of using external observations to figure out the inner working of the black hole, we're mm. quite limited. Mm. Mm. And time for one more question. This question from over there. Cool. Thank you. Uh, I'm a neuroscientist, not a physicist, so just bear with me for a second. Um, my question relates the so if according to general relativity, your perception of time will change as you get nearer the black hole and closer to the singularity, so time will slow down progressively. So is it that what we're seeing from the outside, um, our experience of the black hole from the outside, is it the slow, uh, the, the, the slow motion collapse of whatever it is collapsing? And if you were in the black hole, everything would happen infinitely fast. And what we're seeing is the process just very slowed very, 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 very slowly. Yeah, I mean, that, that's an interesting thing. We've been talking about this, the event horizon, this sort of point of last return, at least when it comes to light. Um, if you, again, in the general relativity context, if there's nothing special about that boundary, there's, so if you were an astronaut on a spaceship and you were to cross into the event horizon, you would notice absolutely nothing. There's nothing special or particular about that specific point uh, in space. But for an external observer, um, we would never see you, cr the astronaut, cross into the black hole. So that perception of time stretch would be perceived by a distant observer rather than by the person himself or herself falling into uh, the black hole. So what does the distant observer see? Just um, They never see, reach the... No, be, it, it, you would see the person slowly and slowly getting closer and closer and time would stretch and then the, it, there's all sorts of effects that yeah. on light. So light changes wavelengths so the astronaut would appear redder and then it would he would dim or she would dim and then eventually disappear and just you'd never see anything more of them no. from their point of view everything's carrying on as normal that's right um, unless they've been ripped apart but, but that's, <laughs> <laughs> that's a different matter yeah. okay yeah I mean let's, um, <laughs> yeah, look, let's, let's turn to this issue then and uh, come to you Karen I mean let's kind of go on a sort of imaginary journey into a black hole then. I mean, what's, what do you think happens so, at the, the edge of the event horizon? So I guess one of the really interesting questions, right, is how can we learn about this event horizon without mm. actually going through it, yeah. right? So if we, even if we could send, like, there aren't any local black holes, mm. and even if there were, I think there'll be ethical <laughs> that's, implications. That's good, right? Yeah. <laughs> I think even if there were, there'd be ethical implications in sending a manned mission inside one. Mm. But even if we, d we got ethics approval and did it, they couldn't send us a signal back. Um, and so one of the things that I'm really interested in as, as, a, as a philosopher is a kind of program to learn about, particularly the horizons. I think there isn't really a way of learning about the singularity this way. But people have been trying to learn about the physics of the horizons by using analog horizons. Um, and so what this is, 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 in a sense, using the analogy between light and sound. And what you can do is create a fluid flow. If you imagine a bathtub, you imagine a, re a really, really quick fluid flowing down a bathtub. You can get the fluid to flow fast enough, or if you can get the fluid to flow fast enough, that it's flowing faster than the speed of sound. Then if you imagine, uh, rather than an astronaut, we imagine a, a, a fish that can only communicate by sound. That'll be a lot like our kind of our project of sending someone in. As they cross the horizon, mm. their last kind of 
uh, cry of help would, would get the equivalent of, of its colour changing, which its pitch would change. And they would, they would then kind of go, go past the horizon. But of course, because we're doing this with sound, we can look on both sides. We can start doing physics of, of these sonic horizons. And this is stuff that people have done in a slightly different way. There's a recent experiment in uh, Israel where people created, uh, using something a bit like a fluid, but it's slightly different. Uh, it's like a superfluid almost. And they created one of these horizons, and they start testing some of these strange predictions, like there being a temperature. So I think it's going to be very difficult for us to get like direct experimental evidence mm. for things like. But bear in mind, this temperature that we're talking about is it's not a temperature that Amelie's going to pick up on her, her her instruments. It's billions of times smaller than even the echo of the Big Bang. It's tiny, tiny, tiny fractions of a fractions of a fraction of a Kelvin. So they're so cold that we're never going to be able to measure their temperature. So doing these kind of analog things is one of the ways that some scientists at least think that they can, can learn about them by proxy. Can you say more about the, the idea of analog here? That this is using, using water, great, trying to create a black hole so in with practice, water. So in practice they don't use water, they use special yeah. kind of very, very um, exotic things called uh, Bose-Einstein condensates which is a little bit like a superfluid, although it's slightly different. So they're actually using quantum theory to describe this. this, this that would help if I knew what a superfluid was. Right? Um, <laughs> so, so they're kind of really fluids yeah. that flow very, very, can mm -hmm. flow very fast, and it can be described very simply. Mm. Um, so, but you can, the, the original idea came from actually using water. And so you can, the maths works out very similarly. So you can really imagine it. It, it actually came, the very, very original idea came from uh, just a waterfall. If you imagine as water is flowing faster and faster and faster, it starts flowing faster than the speed of sound in the water. So once you've mm -hmm. gone past the, the, the horizon where the water is flowing faster than the speed of the sound in the water, if you try and send a sound signal back through the horizon, mm -hmm. it will get washed down. And mm -hmm. so the idea is that you can use this kind of real physics of the horizon mm -hmm. to, in a sense, simulate the physics of a black hole. So you can create a kind of hole that no sound can escape. So it's, it's called a dumb hole. Hmm. And then try and understand a black hole from which no light can escape. Exactly. Yeah. And what sort of things can be can be learned from doing this? So the simplest thing is that they, they it could have been that they created this this analog black hole, this dumb hole, and not found the temperature. Of course, this isn't a real temperature. Mm. This is now a sound temperature, so it's slightly <laughs> a bit strange. But if they had not found, at least what mm. I think is reasonable to say is that. If they'd not found Hawking radiation from a sonic black hole, we'd be rationally justified in being less confident that there's Hawking radiation right. in a real black hole. So it's not a kind of all-or-nothing thing, but I think it's, it, we, can, we can learn a little bit. We can, mm -hmm. we can rationally change what we should believe about black holes by doing and the analog experiments. And Emily, I'd, I'd love to hear what you think about this. I mean, Karim is essentially saying we can find out what happens at the edge of black holes using liquids, water. <laughs> you, the, you use telescopes and look at very distant objects in the sky. Does this make, is this going to work? <laughs> well, for, for, for some things, clearly you mm. can't, like, like you said, I don't think you can reproduce the physics of the singularity sure. in an experiment sure. like this. But just to... Or, or to, the collapse, to, right? You, the, it's not like yeah. these aren't formed by a collapse like no. a black hole. You, you, you engineer them. No, but to, to test some, some ideas and, again, to 
I don't think you will be able to prove or disprove sure. anything, but as you say, to add some evidence that, again, in our picture of let's try to come at a problem from different angles and all see what mm. builds up, that, that's definitely a, a very viable approach. So can, I, and can you test ideas like corking evaporation then? With these so models? not the evaporation, because you don't have the kind of process of, of, of mass being lost in the same way. Mm. So it's, you get the radiation. I don't think, to my knowledge, that people have got a kind of dynamical process of, of actually losing the, the analogue of mass. Because in a sense, it doesn't... What this is isn't really a black hole, it's just a horizon. Yeah. So you don't really have mass for it to lose. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's fascinating, this thought that we can't create a black hole on Earth, but we can create something with some of the properties of a black hole. There, there were some people who thought that you could create black holes, and they were saying that you might be able to get them out of the LHC, so we're quite... I think everyone's quite glad that turned out to be false. <laughs> <laughs> so by colliding particles... Violently enough, they collapse. I think it was a small, uh, you all know better than I, but a small minority who thought that yeah. might happen. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, this, this sort of gets us into this whole topic of where the physics of black holes merges with the, the kind of philosophy of black holes in a way. Because there's something pretty philosophical about this. Sure. What, these these analogue experiments with water, right? This, this inference. Amelie talked, talked about inferences, the inferences we can make about black holes by looking at the, their effects on the things immediately surrounding them. This is a whole new kind of yeah. inference where we're not looking at what's actually surrounding the black hole, but looking at something completely different. So I think it's, it's similar to some inferences that, um, like for instance, if you think like a very simple example is using a, a, a little model aeroplane in a wind tunnel. We think we can learn about real aeroplanes that way. So or we, moreover, like using a computer simulation, we think we can learn about mm. uh, a physical process. Yeah. Uh, in the end, the problem is we've got to know what the, our, our, our simulation is, has the relevant similarities to the thing that we're trying to learn about. Yeah. And checking that in the model aeroplane, we've got good physics to do that. Mm. In the computer simulation, sometimes it goes wrong, but I think physicists or scientists know how mm. to do this. When it comes to these kind of really exotic simulations, I think there's reason to be a bit more cautious that, that the inference from the, the fluid to the, the, the black hole is something we might not understand fully. So I think there are places where we use these kind of analogies in, in, in a really reliable way. Mm. I'm not sure this is necessarily one, but... Um, mm. But you don't know until you're trying. Mm. I'm curious to hear from the, from the philosophical point of view, yeah. this whole idea of accepting that black hole exists from this evidence, which is yeah. slightly indirect. Is that something that's... So I think, um, like, one thing I think is really useful for, for me as a philosopher to think about things is having this kind of granulated degrees of belief. Mm -hmm. And so people talk about this as in terms of Bayesianism or credence, and the idea is that you, you can kind of have a probability in something. And so I, stuff like inferences to, to the black holes existing, it seems like... If, you, if we, we ask some, some, some physicists, how, 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 how much would you bet that black holes exist? Yeah. So something like that. They're going to give you, uh, what would you say, a fa fair odds were. They're going to say, I don't know, 95%, 99%. Uh, if you start asking them, what would you say that uh, the horizon has a temperature, maybe they're going to go down a lot. They're going to say 50%, 60%. If they start asking them about what happens at the singularity, 
think anyone who says more than one percent <laughs> is is very very brave. Yeah. So the singularity is is what the, the center. Center. Uh, yeah, exactly. Um, the, the... So there's one really crazy idea. It's very, very speculative. Mm. Is that you could actually get at the singularity, uh, it could turn into a time reverse black hole and then be a what they called a white hole. Uh, so people with energy spewing out as yeah. opposed to getting sucked in. Mm. Mm. But you say speculative, there's no, there's no evidence of white holes. Mm. No, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> sorry to no. disappoint. Um, <laughs> No. It would be quite exciting if there were. So yes. the, but the, the physicists who argue for this, you do it using mathematical models, yeah. they're, they're well-respected physicists, yeah. um, and it really at that point does go into science fiction. Yeah. When you yeah. think about it, like a, a black yeah. hole, a white hole is actually something that's uh, kind of, uh, you can't, oh, I'm getting the wrong way around. How, how would you describe a white hole? You can't, um, nothing can yeah. get in. Yeah. Nothing can, can get, get in. in yeah. <laughs> it's just... It has a horizon in the same and way. matter comes out and nothing can get in. <laughs> I suppose yeah. the, um, uh, it, but it's always, always been true in the history of science that there are always things that we believe in but can't see yet. Mm, sure. Atoms. You've got a great theory based on the, on the macro level effects of atoms existing even before you see them. So I suppose there are always going to be boundaries like that beyond yeah. which you can't actually see yet. Um, but going back to singularities though, there are models, aren't there, of naked singularities we have a very fast-spinning black hole uh, object, I think. tries to collapse into a black hole, it becomes a kind of donut with a mm. rip in space in the middle, which is exposed, not hidden, not neatly hidden by a singularity, uh, by an uh, event horizon. Yeah, that's one of the, those, when I was talking about the properties of black holes, there's some that can be spinning, and that if you mm. solve the equation to general relativity for that, you find that the singularity is indeed a, a rotating a ring, yeah. and then what happens at the centre of that, that opens right. the door to all sorts of portals into horror, you know, <laughs> different places. And and all that. Just because obviously I really like the analogue experiments, can you guess what the analogue experiment for spinning back hole is? It's a whirlpool. Ah. And so there's this uh, wonderful physicist called Silke Weinfurtner who's actually built uh, a large fluid tank with a vortex in it to simulate the, the spinning black hole. So we've had the hot tub time machine, right? We've got the hot tub black hole. <laughs> I want to go to that resort. That's fantastic. Mm. So what about uh, wormholes, right? White holes, the idea is constantly spewing out matter. There's this I mean, sci-fi notion of a wormhole. You go in one side, you come out somewhere else. There's no basis in, in physics for this. Well, that, that's where it, it, it gets. <laughs> I, I don't wouldn't want to put the hat of science and, and proclaim anything here, but um, so you can that, take that's off where it the gets hat very fuzzy. Science, yeah, I mean, it, it is in principle allowed, right? Some very serious yeah. physicists have made predictions for these things, um, and it comes down to the fact that again, we're limited by the tools we have. Right? It's that point where. GR, general relativity, quantum mechanics, all of that. So you, that gives you a bit of leeway to come up with all sorts of different theories. So is this in the same category as the white holes? Some, some serious yeah, predictions? Absolutely. But it involves the white holes. Yeah. So the, the wormhole really is a black hole and a white hole connected together <laughs> right. by, a, by a tube. Yeah, and it's, <laughs> it's a tube outside normal space-time, yeah. so it's, it's, like a, it's like a shortcut uh, you know, and uh, and I think I think the, the physicist's problem with it is that you need an exotic kind of matter to hold this mm. thing open, uh, a kind of anti-gravity field. 
and no one's quite sure are they how to make this stuff. Mm. Um, but if, if that exists, then you can hold this thing open and possibly pass information through, or even objects through. Mm. But only one way. Well, so you wouldn't be able to get back, presumably. No. Oh, no, no, true. Fair enough. <laughs> so, Emily, I mean, if we can tempt you to take the science hat off mm-hmm. for a moment, what? What's your speculation about what is happening inside a black hole? What do you think? Well, if we define, if you define black hole by inside the event horizon, yeah, it's there's nothing special about it until you get to the point of the singularity. It's what? What do you think happens there? At the singularity. in the, in the movie Interstellar, right, the, the, the guy sort of goes <laughs> finds his, uh, his son or something, what, what, presumably that's not very daughter, that's not very, <laughs> presumably that's not regarded as a serious hypothesis by physicists. What sort of possibilities do physicists take seriously here? Um, well, first of all, I mean, in terms of movies, Interstellar did quite a lot of work with, you know, very, very serious physicists, so it, it, I wouldn't you know, dismiss anything in there just because it is the stuff of movies. It's actually where movies go that it is quite well grounded in actual science. Mm-hmm. But, um, yeah, I mean, from my perspective, it, it's, it's probably where that's, that's the difference between the philosopher and the scientist. For me, it's mm-hmm. almost, from where I stand, my interest in black holes and evolution of galaxies, it's almost pointless to, to think Can about what a, happens. An analogy, yeah. A different type of analogy. Um, so there's another part of physics where we deal with things very much like the singularities and black holes, mm. and that's the early universe. So the other place where we think that there's mm. the map of the equation of general relativity lead to a singularity are, is right at the, at the Big Bang, right? Mm. And so, in a sense, that's why it's such a big problem for us to try and start saying things about what happens in the singularity, because if we knew what happens in black hole singularities, we'd have a lot more understanding also of what happens at the beginning of time. So it's really, really a fundamental question. That's why it's so exciting, but also why it's so, so difficult to speculate. And it's very, hard, like the, it's very hard for us to learn about the very, very early universe. So it's kind of a, something that's really interesting could happen there, but it's very difficult. But it's as well that thinking that with the proper tool, with a theory that encompasses quantum mechanics and gravity, yeah. it probably mm-hmm. wouldn't be a singularity so, yeah. as well. So, so, it, so one idea would be that if we learn about the singularity at the beginning of the universe, so some models, there isn't a singularity, so they call it a bounce, and so there's actually would have been a whole other universe, and the universe kind of collapsed down and expands again. And so that could have been what happened at the beginning of time. If we knew more about those kind of theories, we might be able to speculate more kind of robustly about what happens in a big... In a, so in there a could have been a, another universe before this one. Opposite, a, opposite time. So some of the, the biggest, hardest questions in physics essentially raised by black holes. Um, it's definitely a place where things break down, mm, so that allows yeah. for all sorts of... Theories and where, speculations. Like the Big Bang, right, where the physics of the very big meets the physics of the very small. Mm. It'd be great to take a few more questions from the audience on any of the issues raised so far about what black holes are and how we can begin to speculate or theorise about what might happen at the edge or inside. Let's first of all go 
to the front row, and then we'll go back to the back row. Uh, talking about the immense size of these super black holes that are maybe formed 13 billion years ago, mm -hmm. wasn't the cosmos much more dense at that time? Uh, the material density and the energy density just so much greater? And how do we know what those black holes look like today? Well, to know what those specific black holes look like today, we just have to look in the universe around us, the universe. So the fundamental you know, principle of cosmology is that there's no preferred place in space. The universe is the same everywhere. So uh, when we look very far back, very f you know, in, a, in the distant universe, we're in some sense seeing back in time because of this speed of light, um, the travel time. But by the time we get the light here, that bit of the universe over there has evolved just in the same way our bit of the universe has. So the supermassive black hole we see back then probably has evolved into something that we can see in the, around us in the universe today. So we can find analogs for these objects in the universe today. And a question from the, the very back row there. Please wait for the microphone to come to you. Um, so my question is more on the science fiction side. I think you said, Mr. Thibault, earlier um, that at the singularity of the black hole, there is a possibility uh, of time travel. And I've read something that um, because the black hole always um, saves the information, it swallows. And um, if you could like recreate the spin of a black hole and spin it out somehow, you could recreate what uh, once went into the black hole itself. and if that would be a person, this person would travel through time. I mean, obviously, it would be mm. dead by then, but <laughs> I just wanted to hear your thoughts on that. I don't know how I want to take this one. Well, I think from, I mean, just for the science bit, I mean, that is a fundamental problem with black holes is that they swallow information. We lose information. When the stuff goes in, we lose any information other than its mass, pretty much which is a big problem, and that, that has led to all sorts of debates about whether we can get that information back. And there's some modern theories that say you can get some information back, but it will be in a way that's almost impossible to recognize. So you couldn't just turn back the clock and read exactly and recover exactly. You can get information back, but in a sort of yeah. garbled kind of a way. But, but there is a way to use a wormhole to, as a time machine. Um, as I used in one of my zilly novels up there. Um, and I think it was, it was Kip Thorne, one of those guys. So a wormhole, you, you, you know, in one end and out the other in, in space. So what, to, to turn it into a time machine, you build a wormhole with two portals quite close together, uh, orbiting Jupiter, say. You take one of them and fire it off on, a, uh, on an interstellar ship for 100 years, somewhere close to the speed of light, and then back again. Um, the twin paradox, you know, about that were if you do that with an a pair of astronauts, twins, one stays on Earth, one is, is on the ship. The one on the ship comes back uh, much younger than the one on uh, 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 time dilation. So with the wormhole portals, they're the twins, so you've got a younger one and an older one. Bring it back, so you've got, you know, the one from um, 2000 AD, one from 3000 AD. You can use it as a time portal as opposed to a space portal. Mm by combining those effects of, of, the, of, the, of the bending of space-time and time dilation. 
So, uh, that's really clever. Yeah, it's all fabulously yeah. speculative, but that's a way to use it as a... As a but I, I think it would... I'm not sure, but surely if, if it's a white hole or a black hole, it means you could kind of go one way, but you couldn't... Could you go back again? In a wormhole, you can. Okay, you can so, go back and forth. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. you wouldn't want to go to, go to the distant future and then not be able to get back, would you? No, no, it's, <laughs> yeah. That's the point I was saying about the anti-gravity frames that hold the oh, mouth of the thing okay. open. So you're not crushed as if falling into an event horizon. Oh, okay. You can survive on some finite scale and, and, and go through. That's amazing. Yeah. So if you've got anti-gravity, then you've got a time machine. <laughs> Easy. <laughs> to just follow up on the on the death aspect of the question, right? I mean, is it, is it that inevitably anyone who goes inside a black hole dies horribly, or do they just uh, live a normal lifespan and then die of old age? Yeah, I think you will die horribly. The question is, how quickly will you die, yeah. and from what? <laughs> if we want to go, I mean, a, a, a small black hole will mm. kill you quicker than a supermassive black hole. So if you want to. For a supermassive black hole, you can actually penetrate into the event horizon and you'll be fine for a little while. Whereas um, the small black holes, the, the field, the, the, we call them tidal forces, very much like mm. the, the earth and the moon and being stretched. The water analogy again. Yeah, so you could, yeah, exactly. Um, small black holes would rip you apart before you actually get mm. to the event horizon. And they rip stars apart, right? That's one of the reasons we see them, is this true? Yeah, well, yes, so that's some of the evidence we have for these mm. black holes. It's mostly when stars are in what are called binary systems, two stars orbiting each other, and one of the star is a black has become a black hole, and then it can sort of swallow material from its companion stars, and that material sort of orbits around the black hole, gets really, really hot, and that emits X-ray radiation, for example, which we can then detect. Isn't, isn't there some evidence of that with the supermassive black hole in the centre of the galaxy with what looked like broken up stars? Uh... Yeah, well, well, we just, we're trying to, that was a discovery from just a few months ago. We mm. witness, we can witness clouds of gas going in orbit around, you know, not very far, just a little bit further out from yeah. the event horizon. So mm. there is definitely material there that the black hole can swallow. Mm. And time for one more question on the, the physics and philosophy of black holes. Um, it seems to me that theoretical physics is approaching a point where we are developing ideas and, and theories that are not directly um, empirically able to, to be tested empirically. And I wanted to ask you, do you think that in the future we will have to devise some kind of way to decide between theories mm -hmm. from a theoretical point of view. So is, is, in other words, is, is empirical evidence going to be less significant for future theories? Mm. So lots of <laughs> philosophers have got very excited about this recently. Um, unsurprisingly, as with most debates, some of them think definitely, in a sense, we need to learn new tools to assess theories without empirical evidence. Um, one of these ideas is using, uh, it's called the no alternatives argument. If you look very hard for alternative theories and you can't find any, that's evidence in favour of the one you found. Mm -hmm. Other philosophers are like, very, very unhappy about this and they think this is a kind mm -hmm. of... Uh, a negative and pessimistic and potentially damaging thing to happen to science. So my personal view is that 
in the past people have always said, oh, we won't find any, we've kind of reached the end of our horizon and they've been wrong, and I, I hope that's true as well. Uh, but yeah, so I, I'm very hopeful that, that new evidence will, in, in, in our lifetimes will help to decisively change these things. But certainly some philosophers think that the scientific method will change such that we should be able to assess theories without evidence. Well, Emily? Yeah, well, I was going to say, I mean, that is the fundamental principle of the scientific, me scientific mm. method that we've built over you know, thousands of years, mm. that you, know, you make predictions which you confirm with experiments, mm. or sometimes the experiments are ahead and mm. in the yeah. waiting for a theory to explain them. And you know, it's always been like this. It's been this interplay of the two sides pushing each other forward. So for me, as in somebody who works with, in the realm of observations, it's quite difficult to, to think of theories mm. that that can be self-fulfilling in some sense. But, yeah. um, mm. and that's why, you know, string theory, while a very credible theory, is not very mainstream for that reason, that it lacks the ability to make predictions that we can verify and at the moment. One of the, the, the predictions that, that the string theorists are so, most happy about, that's seen as, by some people seen as evidence for string theory, is exactly the prediction about the temperature of black holes that we were talking about. So this is a strange situation that the prediction that you have a temperature for a black hole is a very speculative prediction. But even recovering that is seen as a piece of evidence in favour of string theory. And there's no empirical evidence. So just generating a prediction is seen as evidence. That, that we get from other parts of physics. Yeah. <laughs> right, whether it's confirmed or not. Yeah, so, so it's consistency between Hawking's prediction and uh, mm. the theory of quantum gravity has seemed like a litmus test. The litmus test is just being consistent with another theory, theoretical mm. prediction we haven't empirically confirmed. I mean, Amelie, do you think this is the end of science? <laughs> if, if theories are no longer being tested against data but against other theories? No, I mean, it, it's, like it's, else, it's, more, it? it's more a revolution in the way we do science, but that's, mm. that's not so the, the end of things. My, no. my big hope is, like I said before, I think there's chance, it's unlikely we'll know things about Hawking temperature or inside of black holes probably ever, but it's, it's very likely or very possible that we could learn about the early universe, and we might be able to use observations about the early, of the early universe to test our theories of black holes. Mm. Mm. So that, that's a possibility. Yeah, so more time for questions later, but for now, I mean, let's think about this point where, where knowledge ends and fiction begins. I mean, you, you're noted for a kind of sci-fi that involves taking physics very, very seriously, being very, very informed by current science. Uh, the science of black holes has been very fertile ground for you. Well, yes, and, and, and I think since, since they, they, the idea of a black hole coalesced was in the 60s, I guess, mm -hmm. language like event horizons and so on, mm. um, uh, yeah, the science fiction writers picked up on, on the possibilities. And I, I, I would say the first great black hole novel was Gateway by a, a writer called Fred Pohl, which is P-O-H-L. 77, I think, something like that, um, called Gateway. And he picks up on the, the, the situation you described so well about the, a big black hole, you've got an astronaut falling into it. Mm. I think in this story, she falls through um, the event horizon feeling nothing, but she's doomed to die in some finite time, isn't she, from her point of view, mm. by falling in. I think it's, it's inevitable, isn't it, watching through the event horizon, you're going to go into the singularity, right. you can't get back out again. Or, well, you can't even extend your time you're going in there um, down the pluck hole 
in your mm. model yeah. terms. Mm -hmm. um, and, but as you said, an external observer, from their point of view, the, in, it's his point of view in this case, you see the astronaut kind of plastered on the event horizon like a, like a, like a fly in amber. So uh, in fiction, you know, you, that's a great scenario, but it's, uh, the, the question to ask if you're trying to generate a piece of fiction is who is it hurting? Who has been hurt by the scenario? And well, A, the astronaut is going to, who's doomed to die in some final time, but also the observers stuck outside because from, from their point of view, their loved one is doomed for one thing, but it's still there as a kind of image. You know, it's tantalizing or agonizing that it, 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 their death will not occur in your lifetime, in a sense, because it's of this dis distortion of time at the horizon. And Fred Pohl built a whole series of novels around that basic problem of, you know, you, you, you go in there because there are alien artifacts to, to find near the black hole, but then if you get sucked in too far, then you've, you're lost, but trapped, stuck in, in, in the event horizon. Um, so that's the way the fiction writers take it. You know, what can you do with the black hole? What, how would it hurt you? What kind of stories can you generate? Right, so the excitement of black holes for you is, is thinking what happens when humans interact with them and when our kind of evolved emotions and natures confront something that we just cannot understand and is on a scale that is just far beyond well, well, what we well, can comprehend. Well, more than that, really. It's more like, what, what is it like to live in a universe with black holes in, you know? Um, there, was, there was a wave of, of fiction after Fred Pohl uh, about using the black holes in some way, particularly microscopic black holes. We mentioned mm -hmm. that. If you've got a microscopic... It's, it's like a very compact source of energy. You can, you can stuff, throw stuff in. Some goes into the singularity, but a lot of it just gets compressed by the tides, and you get a burst of energy back out again. So Arthur C. Clarke, in uh, a book called In Imperial Earth, which is about uh, a colonized solar system, he uses a black hole drive in there. And it's, it's not much but a, but, a, but a black hole weight that you chuck stuff in, you get a beam of radiation out that shifts you forward. I think it's been proved since then not to be a very good idea. Because <laughs> it wouldn't work very well, it wouldn't be very efficient. You don't get a very good exhaust velocity to push you fast. But it's, you know, in principle, it's a way. And there's also a waste problem. Suppose this, the, your major black hole gets too large, it's absorbed all the mass that you've so thrown into can it. Can I just stop you there? So yeah. what Jonathan was talking about earlier seems really relevant to what you say. So, what, so Arthur C. Clarke came up with the idea. Was it then proved by scientists took it seriously and then wanted to work on showing if it could work or not? I don't know if, if Clarke okay. invented it, to be honest. Okay. Because, but Clarke was... Um, he, uh, I worked with him when he was in, getting towards 90. He was fascinated by the new. The internet was great for him. He was, and he had contacts like you wouldn't believe, mm. like Kip Thorne and people like that, um, in, in, in terms of relativity. So he would have been involved in these conversations. So I think, I think possibly um, someone was coming up with conceptual ideas and he picked them out. That okay. would, work for a, would work for a starship. So, but uh, yeah. But there's definitely an interaction between the Absolutely. scientists and. Yeah. Um, but on the larger scale is what I really like about black holes. I think that the fact that they are, it's the geography of black holes, if you like, the fact that the features of the universe, right back to the beginning with the supermassive black holes, well, maybe there were creatures of some kind who fed off these massive energy sources even back then. And in the far future, and that's what I've got in my Zili sequence particularly, uh, what happens in the, in the future, I like to think on these big time scales with lots of zeros at the end, you know, we look, the sun is a star that will last for a few billion years, right? 
And there's the old joke, isn't there? Somebody said that at some conference. The sun will die in a, in a few billion years. And this guy goes, oh, no. Like, Don't worry, a billion years is a long time. Oh, I thought you said a million. <laughs> <laughs> so a billion is a thousand million. Um, but what happens in 100 billion years then? Well, there are smaller stars, like the Proxima Centauri, the nearest star to the sun, will last trillions of years. Um, OK, what happens in 100 trillion years then, when all those stars have died off? What will you... What will we, or some kind of successor intelligence, use as a as, as structure, as an energy source? Uh, and you turn in the end to the black holes. Mm. You know, we could all migrate to the supermassive black hole at the centre of the galaxy and do the kind of thing I've talked about, throw stuff in to get energy out. Mm. Or you can, you can mine the spin of a black hole for energy, can't you? The Penrose process? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So this is actually what the, the Whirlpool uh, analog model was actually testing, was, was, right. was exactly that. Yeah. Black hole spinning drags, um, it's like a kind of paint, I think of it, with a big stick. It drags space-time around with it. So in principle, so it's outside the horizon, right? So you can, you can mine that, maybe, and you extract energy, useful energy, to, from that process. Mm. All that was shown very well in the interstellar, in the, in the visuals of the black hole. I think they came up with some new physics, actually, to show how the light is bent by this swirl of space. And so you see... You know, there's great scenes where you see a, like, a lopsided halo because the light is being dragged around on one side and pulled back on the other side. You can actually see it if you're standing in front of the thing. Mm. It's wonderful. And, Amelie, I mean, is that something that is good for you as a physicist to see sci-fi authors, filmmakers visualising this stuff that is so abstract? Yeah, absolutely. Well, certainly for it, it's useful to have mm. images to put on this. This, you know, the, we're talking about interstellar, but that, that the realism of this construction of this supermassive black hole and like mm. uh, Stephen was just saying I mean the, the fact that black holes or high concentrations of mass can bend space and therefore mm. deflect light is something we call gravitational lensing which is something that we mm. use quite a lot to try to find out about things that we can't see directly and that, that's exactly a case where the, to get that super fantastic detailed illustration it pushed some of the mm. the science further than what we had mm. before yeah. actually motivated the scientists yeah. well well kept thought this name we keep on mentioning uh, uh, he served as a science advisor on that movie and he wrote a, it's an interesting book the science of interstellar is a good book with nice pictures and everything but he you, you get the process of how this dialogue emerged between the filmmakers and people like kip thorne i think i think what's mm. one thing scientists science fiction does do is ask questions like what does it actually look like then you know you have to work out mm -hmm. things that aren't necessarily immediately obvious from the theoretical models um, uh, but on the other hand uh, poor old Kip Thorne described a lot of instances where uh, he said well if you want time dilation of that much you've got to be this close it's just making but the filmmakers yeah. wanted to be, to be out there yeah. so they stuck yeah. it out there you know and part of what sci-fi does is bring the human back into the picture right? exactly yeah. what does what would this look like to a human yeah. what would but happen to a human it also i think one of the really interesting things is using the difference that computers make like when people mm. first came up with black holes there weren't powerful computers that you can you can start studying the kind of so a lot of the physics of black holes you need to use um, computational techniques to really understand mm. them so like i would imagine the fact that they had really powerful computers that they could make the simulations if it was relevant to why the, why the filmmaking was so mm. important for, for setting that. Mm. Maybe I mean, knows more about this. 
No, well, that's exactly it. In a lot of these kind of extreme physical situations, we're beyond what we can do with pen and paper. Right? It's Therefore all down to supercomputers, and mm. the more supercomputing power you throw at it, the more accurate the results you are. So, yes. Mm. If there's a, you know, a strong drive to get that accuracy, it will push things forward. Yeah, uh, at, um, at one point in, in the evolution of sciences, I've followed it in my lifetime, it looked like black holes might be absolutely essential for our very far future because there'd be nothing else left, you know, everything else has evaporated away except the black holes. So Freeman Dyson, that's a, a name you may have heard of, he's one of these great conceptual thinkers. He, he tried to prove in a series of papers in principle, that intelligence could survive almost forever by working on larger and larger scales with more and more exotic objects. And in the end, he had this vision of um, we'd all work around the supermassive black holes. By that time, the galaxies are all scattered away. But the, I think it's right to say that the bigger the black hole, the slower the evaporation. So, so what you need to do is farm them on a universal scale, right? Merge them to get even bigger black holes to make them evaporate slower and last longer. This is all mind, you know, manipulated at the universe on a cosmic scale to, to, to keep mm. functioning. Fantastic vision. It might not be like that, but it's, I think it's what the mathematicians would call a proof of existence. You know, if there's mm. one way that life and mind can keep on going forever, then, mm. then there, there'll be other ways, better ways. However, since then, this is like 20 years ago, since then, dark energy has come along. And the big rip where, you know, this, this new energy field is just going to smash everything apart anyway, as far as I can see. Brings out this interesting way in which sci-fi can be a source of optimism. Right? Yeah, we yeah. often think of it as these dystopian futures, but to some extent it's also about showing possible ways for humanity to exist over a long time scale. Oh yeah, I think so, yeah. And how people can prosper. You know, you, you, in, in, in fiction you look for conflict and so forth, but, but you also look for, mm. for, for people achieving goals in some way mm. and, and, and hope at the end. Yeah. I mean, your, your own novels are often on a time scale that completely boggles the mind. Right? Billions of years, you, you try to write fiction over the entire history of the universe. And this idea of sort of life in black holes, black holes being possible sources of alien life is, a, is an important idea for you. Um, it has been, but I think, I, I think on the whole I've found the idea of... Um, of uh, uh, of, of living close to close and per, uh, personal to the black hole. I mean, maybe in the earlier stages of the universe's evolution, even the first few minutes of the Big Bang, the whole epochs where the physics was different, basically, or a different kind of physics was working out, you could get life in there, maybe. So the zeli of my title there are from the very early stages of the universe where space-time itself wasn't settled. So you have kind of bird-like creatures of space-time, discontinuities and flaws, surviving to later stages, and that's, the, that's what the Zeli are. So later on, they're attracted to the black holes because, you know, that's where space-time is twisted and they kind of feed and so forth. In, in my latest novel, it's called Redemption. One of these Zeli goes to the black hole at the centre of the, of the galaxy to survive, builds a big ring world around the black hole and spins it at relativistic speeds, extracting energy from the black hole to do so. So, you know, this, it, it's a mixture of biology and engineering and... Uh, and what the raw material of, 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 of it all is. But I do like the idea that in the end, a black hole is nothing but space-time. You know, it's surrounded by its accretion disks, stuff falling in and so forth, but the thing itself is nothing but a, a flaw in a way of space-time, or a sculpture of space-time. And Karim, let's bring you in on this. I mean, 
quite a productive relationship between philosophy and sci-fi, I would say, over the years. I mean, do you, you know, as a philosopher of physics, sometimes look for sci-fi for inspiration? Um, I, I was, I was stroke am still a big fan of, of Red Dwarf. <laughs> uh, and I don't know, uh, I think for those of us who have uh, perhaps, I guess, in their 30s or over, uh, would, have, would have seen Red Dwarf on, on television. And there's one episode in particular, I think, that's um, really, really philosophically interesting mm. that actually relates to some of the stuff we've been talking about already, which is called Backwards, in which they go to a, to a universe in which uh, the arrow of time is, is going the other way. They, of course, retain their, their, their kind of orientation of time. So everything they experience is um, the time reverse of what you'd expect. Um, with some, like, kind of interesting and humorous consequences. And so like, I, I quite like the idea that maybe we can think about um, possible futures or possible pasts in which our orientation in time is reversed. And so... I think that there's lots of really kind of vivid and kind of like playful ways to, to kind of engage with these ideas that kind of cross between science, philosophy, physics, and in a sense they don't really live in, in any of them. Yeah. Mm. I, I think, I think in, a, in a more general sense, I think science fiction, modern science fiction, and particularly probably media SF, has actually um, informed the public view of the universe as a whole, yeah. and therefore, you know, the philosophy of the race as a whole. Um, just the fact that the, the, the stars are suns like ours, and like space is really big, I think most people know that, if only from Star Trek and so forth, you know. Yeah. I know it's simplistic with the stars washing past the window, but, but, just, but just the idea that's, that, that that star is like our sun, it's, it's small and dim because it's so far away. Mm. But it's such an, in the end, it's such an old idea that... that really the fiction and imagination and art is part of the process of, of, of ideas being kind of passed between like scientists or, or back then natural philosophers or, 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 or mystics and there isn't this kind of cumetic seal between artists and scientists and yeah. philosophers and I think in a sense what we're talking about is not something particular to, to, to sci-fi and, and physics There's, Lots of different ways in which these different aspects yeah. of kind of human intellectual life kind of mm. can and should fruitfully engage with each other. Mm. Yeah. I mean, we're at this stage of uh, where over specialization exactly. and technical knowledge required to do anything is so high that we're forced to dig down onto a little alleyway. But yeah, yeah the mm. basics is just what it used to be. I mean, we've already had this idea that sci-fi authors and filmmakers will often consult scientists to try and get things right. Do you think there should be the opposite too? You know, uh, authors in residence, things like that, authors in the lab, interacting yeah. with I mean, scientists. I mean, we do have artists in residence. That is yeah. a thing that, that we yeah. have at yeah. times. And yeah, absolutely. I mean, some of the hardest questions for us as scientists to answer often come from other realms, and so it's like, oh, well, mm. I hadn't thought yeah. about it that way, at least. And yeah. yeah. Well, the idea of wormholes, I think, was, was mm. con consolidated by, by by that kind of process. Carl Sagan mm. wrote Contact. So Sagan was a you know professional astronomer, mm. rather than a but but you know he did write this great SF book, Contact, about first contact with aliens, and he wanted a wormhole um, as a way to for the aliens to reach us and so forth. Um, uh, so he and he knew so in relativity. Einstein, Rosen, Bridges, 
the, the, the idea of this, this, these flaws in space-time were, were, were already there, but you get crushed by trying to travel through one. So he went to these guys like Kip Thorne and said, how could, is there a way you could make this work then? Uh, what, how do you bend the theory? And I think that's one, one function of science fiction. It's not so much that you stick rigidly to the laws of physics. You can push it a bit, you know. Well, if I built this, what would you need to, to, to make it, you know? You know a ring world um, circling the sun would need some material of tensile strength more than we've got at the moment. So mm. how, how could you build this stuff? Could you use the nuclear force to build a bridge? You know, it's, it's that kind of... Uh, asking a good, good question, and the wormhole question was definitely a good question, and back came the model we have now with, with, with this kind of anti-gravity field. And masses of papers, as they tried to work out the implications of this thing, you know, if you, if you, billiard balls with wormholes, you've seen those kind of models, you, you, you knock a billiard ball down a hole to the wormhole mouth, and it pops up over there, knocks itself out of the way before, it, you know, it's wonderful stuff. So, it's, so that's an idea where a, a concrete science fictional image, really, and it... Mm. Science fiction is a very visual medium, mm. uh, fed back a good questions of theorists. Mm. Mm. And Stephen, in your own fiction, I mean, how important is it to you that what you write is compatible with current physics, or is it to some extent that you you will bend the rules? You sort of you you want it to be compatible with a kind of hopeful future physics or something like that? Well, a, a bit of both, really. I, I, I'd like to try not to contradict anything that's that's mm. that's established at the moment. Um, which is tricky, though, with cosmology especially. You know, we seem to have a really good story of the Big Bang. You know, every so often, one decimal point of the age of the universe changes, but the future, as I said, is flapping around like once it was cooling and spreading out with big black holes evaporating. Mm -hmm. Now it's the big rip where, we're, you know, it's, it's, it's an entirely different model. So it's, it's, it's a lot of my books have been invalidated by the science moving on, if you see what I mean. So, but I, I've always liked to think that this is credible, this could happen conceivably, because um, that's the way you get an um, uh, a, um, uh, authenticity in the sense that this, you know, this could be true. Mm. For instance, in one, um, in, in one of my novels called Exultant, I try to map uh, the expansion of humanity across the galaxy, uh, which is something that you see many times in science fiction. You know, the, Star Wars throws away the ideas of uh, empires spanning galaxies and so forth, but how do we actually do it? Given you know, high-speed travel and so forth and relativity, how would we actually do it? How do we sustain a society which is, enables us to do these things and, uh, um, and so on? So um, it, it, it will probably never happen, but it's, it tests the bounds of the possible in a way, and, and occasionally going a, a little over into, um, um, well, well, could it be this way? Mm. Right, and that theme of testing the bounds of the possible, I think, has, has run through all of your work in, in, mm -hmm. in very different ways. I think that's, I, that's, that's probably, like, in a sense, why all of us find black holes exciting, mm. is because they're at this kind of edge of, of what we really know about. What, that's what's so exciting mm. about them. Yeah. Yeah. Great. I mean, let's take some more questions from the audience now on this relationship between sci-fi, physics, philosophy as well as the particular place black holes have in, uh, in fiction. Thank you. Um, we discussed early uh, the idea of energy generation from black holes and the huge amount of power that might be able to wield. And we also discussed briefly the idea of uh, bringing humanity back to the far future, the idea of far future science. And I think both of those things are very correct. At the moment, we can wield a very small amount of energy, even compared to the output of the sun, but even that 
you look at the last hundred years have been has been used to threaten humanity and threaten uh, each other. I kind of I guess my question is, are we as humans responsible enough to be even allowed to wield the kinds of power we're talking about when we're discussing energy generation from supermassive black holes? Well, I, I think I would say. Um, uh, we're, we're, we're probably not responsible enough to do stuff that's far below the level of messing with black holes. <laughs> uh, for instance, just expanding into space. You know, if we had a uh, thriving interstellar, uh, sorry, interplanetary uh, transport system, the energy that you wield there is huge. You know, the, the crash of a large um, uh, spacecraft on the Earth would be far worse than the, the, the planes slamming into the, into the Twin Towers, terrorists getting hold of a space plane. Uh, the energies that you wield on an interplanetary scale are so large that a war could be mm. you know, an extinction event. Um, horrifying to think of. You know, we, we've, we've managed to sort of keep the, the lid on the bottle of the genie of um, uh, atomic power since the war, since the Second World War. But it, it, it does seem to me, and a lot of other people as well, there's been conferences about this. We really need proper governance on the Earth before we move out into space. Mm. Not necessarily a world government, but you know, a decent international order so that war becomes, on any large scale, imp impossible, mm. inconceivable, because, just because of, the, of, of, of so much energy has been wielded. If you think about it, imagine a solar system with a few domed bases on Mars and the Moon and so forth. Well they will be very easily destroyed, even by a terrorist bomb within, a, within the dome. Uh, on the other hand, the moon dwellers could easily chuck down rocks into the Earth's atmosphere, as in Heinlein's, the moon is a harsh mistress, and, uh, with, with, with very little effort, really, and using probably um, uh, technologies that were built to transfer lunar resources to space colonies and so forth. Fire them at the Earth, and you've got a terrible, terrible dinosaur killer weapon so so really I th you're quite right to ask that we i don't we want we should well we can't say we're not going to do things it would be far better if we can expand further our capabilities with a decent government governance system mm. on the earth can, can i just ask a little follow-up because it seems like there's a sense in which what you're a lot of what you're doing that's so fascinating is actually philosophy of social science mm. so it's like the social science of a future where we had more advanced technology yeah mm. Oh, I think so, yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, but uh, within science fiction, the tradition is a lot of it was American and a lot of it was rather what you could, might call libertarian now, the frontier spirit, where Heinlein was a classic case and he was a pole for American politics for a long time in SF, where you, you, know, you build your colony, but that's the point, then you move on to the next place, having trashed the, the, the environment mm. there. It's at this moving edge, you know, out through the solar system and beyond. And you, you don't, you reject violently world governments that would interfere with, with American politics particularly. So, so um, the idea of world governance and so forth, and peace movements was rather smuggled under the radar by people like Clark. If you read a, read a lot of Clark, even in books like Charter Dense, which is about alien invasion, world governments all over the place, you know, he just presents them there, there's a world council, everything's... He always makes the point that once you do away with the guns, then, then all that released wealth and education improves the lot of humanity drastically. So he kind of smuggled it in, didn't argue strongly most of the time, but he, but he, but he, but he smuggled it. He always argued that, that inter-national uh, um, communications technologies, satellites, would lead to better education, would lead to a united Earth one day.
There was a, a, a protocol signed by the early um, uh, telecom satellite operating nations sometime in the 60s, Entelsat, and he gave a sort of a speech at the end of that, and he said, uh, they signed this article about cooperating in, in, in this communication technology, and he said, you just signed the first draft of the Articles of Federation of the United Earth. <laughs> so they came out of the bunker at that point. So it definitely is. You know, SF writers either have to imagine, you know, how are you going to deal with a war like that or avoid it altogether? So, yeah. I mean, those optimistic visions of the 60s, they often seem very much at risk today. Right? It's not clear that in international cooperation has, has been achieved in the way that... Well, I think, I, I would say, if you think that this is off the topic of us, but I think if you take the long view, it's mm. not bad, really. I mean, global warming, terrible thing, but we do have a global awareness of this thing. It's not mm. like, uh, as we were 100 years earlier, let's say, um, we do have a plan of sorts, don't we, have the Paris Protocols and so forth, even if we're not following them very well. There are global governance agencies that are looking at it, even if we're not doing particularly... At least the, the, the vision is there. We've got a plan for the year 2100, in a sense. So I take a lot of optimism from that, frankly, that we're... At least the consciousness is raised in most of us, <laughs> if not all, and, 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 there is, and there is a plan that we could conceivably follow. You're so optimistic. Wonderful. <laughs> um, further questions on any of the topics we've discussed? Um, thank you. Um, so you mentioned interstellar a while ago, and one of the things that fascinated me was the Murphy's Law, which I first heard about in the movie. And uh, in the, at least in the movie, it's presented almost as a scientific law, which is that what can go wrong will go wrong, or what can happen will happen. And to me, it was almost a philosophical postulate. So I was wondering if that law has any relevance when you are speculating about the universe or what the life of the universe is going to be like. Murphy's law. Murphy's law. Murphy's law. So, <laughs> what can go wrong will go wrong. Well, is that correct? Yeah, well, I think it, well, it connects a bit with what we were discussing earlier about how we want to do science. Right? There's something like, that we call the anthropomorphic principle, which means that if a theory mm. doesn't allow for life to be present on Earth today, then that theory must be wrong, right? So uh, thinking in that way, right, just considering theories for their future possible consequences and so on, that could be a way to go around the, the issue of evidence-based science if we're mm. limited in that front. So, mm. but, but of course the problem is we, do, we, so, we know so little about what are the possible conditions for life. So we're kind of replacing one speculation with, with another one. Absolutely, yeah. Mm. So I, 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 think, I think maybe the ultimate Murphy's Law, though, would be if, going back to the discussions of theories and more and more advanced theories, string theory and so on, what if the ultimate theory of the universe, this mathematical description, is just too hard for our sure. human brains? I don't see why it shouldn't be, really. Sure. Um, uh, we may have to wait for an, some AI to encompass superstring theory or whatever it is and give us the results which would seem very unsatisfactory. It's rather like computer programs proving Fermat's mm -hmm. that's theorem, and, or the, no, the four-color theorem is the, is the classic case, isn't it? Well, you, you've got to kind of prove that the program works, but you can actually follow the proof yourself. And it's, it's move, moving the understanding of the universe away from the human brain, in a way. But, uh, but uh, again, an optimistic note is that Einstein didn't have the maths for relativity, did he, when he started off? You know, he, he had to... He, he knew that he needed space-time curvature stuff and so, so forth. And he, and he stopped and studied, as I understand it. Went so he to... didn't know it very well, but a lot of it was kind of 
was established already. Yeah, and that's I think true. Yeah. He certainly was a very good mathematician, but he, he found it hard going and he had to get some, some help. In the yeah, end. and he went up to study this stuff, didn't he? Yeah. And then came went back to LCT. So if, if it's too hard for Einstein... <laughs> <laughs> Mm. But Murphy's law, not, law not, not strictly speaking a law of nature, but uh, yeah. maybe a very useful rule of thumb. Any further questions on uh, where <coughs> physics, philosophy, sci-fi meet? Lots of questions, but <laughs> I'll restrict myself to one. Um, on the evaporation thing, at the very beginning, you were talking about Hawking evaporation. I thought there was some sort of, well, perhaps not contradiction in what was said, but unresolved stuff. So we have Hawking evaporation as an idea. And from what, uh, from what Emily says, we don't know how that works. But we know it. the theory says so, right? And then what, what Karim said later on was that, well, or perhaps Stephen, that, well, we have the evaporation and the black holes evaporate to nothingness. Well, but you said something about the evaporation actually occurring at the boundary at the event horizon, mm -hmm. and not in the inside. So if the evaporation is only a feature of the event horizon, why would the mass of the black hole decrease to nothingness? That's a very good question. Um, so there isn't currently a model of how quantum fields actively, or con the quantum -y bit, actively couples to the mass in a process by it. It's very, very speculative. Mm -hmm. And so all the stuff that people say about black holes and once the black hole is formed is for a kind of a stationary black hole that's radiating. And then they just assume that it shrinks a bit and then radiates more than shrinks a bit. But actually providing a, a full mathematical model in a respectable way that actually describes the shrinking process, to my knowledge at least, yeah. hasn't really been done. So there's a basic, I mean, again, from solving equations about black holes that the mass and the size are directly proportional. So if you can somehow manage to remove a bit of mass, the black hole will exactly. shrink accordingly. So some of these explanations for how the Hawking radiation could proceed is that you think of you know, little quantum fluctuation right at the event horizon, and then one of the particles escapes, and then the other one gets you know, incorporated into the black hole. And then if you can think of that particle being incorporating as having some sort of negative mass you would take away from the black hole, therefore making it shrink. But that's, like I say, the, the exact mechanics of yeah. how that would happen is very... And what's, what's really weird is that it seems that no matter how you try and describe the mechanics of what happens, you end up with the same formula for the temperature, <coughs> which is why everyone believes in it. So people think that it's kind of a universal thing that black holes have this temperature even though we don't have a causal story about really what the shrink, how the shrinking works. Hmm. I suppose if the evaporation goes on long enough, the singularity will be exposed? Mm. Well, it will, yeah. Oh, it, I guess it, it, it's, it will itself disappear. I guess the, 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 the size of the horizon will, will tend shrink. towards zero. Yeah. So in a sense, the singularity will kind of uh, evaporate, I guess, would be yeah. the idea. Yeah. Unless you get to a point, I guess, where you've lost enough mass that your light can finally stream yeah. out. Or um, but that's, I think that that's, that kind of realm is where we get into to kind of real speculation. Yeah. We get to the Planck yeah. scale. Um, mm -hmm. 
Yeah, I mean, I think it's exciting to think of how much we don't know about black holes and how much there is essentially still to speculate on, still to imagine. Um, but I think the three of you have done a fantastic job of not merely discussing but also exemplifying the productive relationships that do exist and, and can exist between physics and philosophy and science fiction. Um, I'm afraid that's all we've got time for. Thanks very much for your questions and let's thank all of our panellists for a really interesting <laughs> Thank you.